printed there for you in the bulletin. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you thanks for your word. And we're thankful for the sacrament, a very tangible, visible reminder of our ingrafting into Christ, a sign and a seal that we have our sins forgiven and been washed with clean water. And we have been renewed for new life in Christ. And we have been brought in to the people of God through this, uh, through the baptism. And so as we consider this topic this morning, we ask for wisdom and that you would apply these things to our very hearts. For we pray this in Christ's name. And amen. Every culture has some form of initiation rites. Uh, you know, we have these to get into certain clubs or uh, various steps that you need to go through. Sometimes they're like hazing rituals. There's one uh, ritual in Brazil for the young men to become a man. They have to uh, put on this glove that has sewn into it bullet ants. And it's called a bullet ant because it's one of the most painful stings on earth. And it feels like being shot with a bullet. And they'll have multiple, multiple ants woven into this uh, glove. And the young men have to put the glove on. They will be stung by it repeatedly. And then which pain will endure for 24 to 48 hours. And if they manage to do that without crying, without showing any physical weakness, then they are initiated to become men. I'm certainly thankful that is not our culture's tradition. I don't know if I would be considered a man if I had to go through such a thing. And I'm so thankful that the initiatory rite in the church is just the cleansing waters of baptism. We have been considering in a sermon series this month of May... What are sacraments? We have been uh, looking at the sacraments in general, and the sacraments in the Protestant church are just two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And several weeks ago, we considered the Lord's Supper, and before that, we considered just in general, what is a sacrament? And we determined that from Scripture, a sacrament is a, a sign and a seal of the righteousness that we have by faith. Now, the baptism or the Lord's Supper, they don't save you, in the very doing of those things, but they do point to a deeper reality. They're not meaningless. They are actual signs that signify something. So we're asking this morning, what does the sign and seal of baptism signify? What does it show us? What does it point to? What can we learn from it? How is it used in Scripture? Um, And we're considering this because this morning we're going to have a baptism of little Josiah Menchie. And so since it's been several years since we've had a baptism, it's good for us to consider these things, to consider why it is 
that we are baptizing an infant, why it is that we do baptism in general, what's the purpose of it. So this morning we're going to consider that in two ways. What is the nature of baptism and who was baptism for? So this morning, first, we're going to consider the nature of baptism. And, and the, I can summarize by just saying that baptism is a sign and a seal of our ingrafting into Christ. And we could be done there. But what does that mean? What does it mean that I'm engrafted into Christ? And what does it mean that this is a sign and a seal of that reality? So I want to look at it in three ways. First, it's a sign and seal of our cleansing from sin. Secondly, it's a sign and a seal of the new life that we have in Christ. And thirdly, it's a sign and seal of adoption and admission into the church. So let's consider these together, that the baptism signifies our union with Christ in his death. You see, we read earlier from Colossians 2, And there Paul identifies that when we have trusted in Christ, we were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Okay, so what Paul is saying is that when Christ died, he didn't just die as an individual. He didn't just die for himself, but he just died as a substitute for you and me, for all of those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. So that we can say with Paul that when Christ died, you died. He died for the penalty that you owed. You had a death sentence. All of us do. It hangs over our heads. But Paul said when Christ died, the record of that debt was canceled. Your debt has been wiped away. You have been cleansed from your sin. And that is because you have been united to him in his death. That means that when he died, you died. And when he rose again from the dead, you rose again from the dead. You have been so identified with Jesus Christ that what is true of him is true of you. And what's true of Christ is that he paid the penalty For your sins. And that means he cleansed you from your sins. So baptism, first and foremost, is a sign. Now remember, a sign is something that points to a deeper reality. A stop sign tells you to stop. When you see the sign, you know that it is signifying that you must stop. When you see the sign of baptism, it signifies that you have been cleansed from your sin. And of course, how fitting. Because what do we do when we take a bath? When we wash ourselves with water, we're cleansing ourselves from our sweat and our filth. In the same way, the baptism signifies that you have been cleansed from the filth of your sin. And you have been forgiven through Christ. And this is absolutely vital for you to get that the mortification of sin, that is the killing of sin, is given to you because you have been identified with Christ. 
We don't want to get that backwards. We don't want to say, well, you really need to clean yourself up first. Then you can come to baptism. You really need to get rid of the penalty of sin in order for you to come to Christ and be united to him. But that's to get the cart before the horse. You see, your righteousness comes because you're in Christ. Not because you deserve to be there, you don't. Not because you've done anything right in your life to get you there. Or because of your station or who you were born to or where you were born or your socioeconomic status. None of that matters. What matters is that Jesus chose you. And he said, that one's mine. And I'm going to pay for his salvation with my own life. And so your identification with Christ is something that you rest in. It's not something you're doing. You're not washing yourself. You're being washed. And baptism is a sign and a seal that you have been washed and cleansed from sin. The record of debt has been canceled. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. So baptism is a sign and a seal of our forgiveness of sins. As Peter said in our our text from Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So baptism is a sign and a seal of your cleansing from sin, of your being forgiven of the record of debt that you owed. But baptism is also a sign and a seal of new life. It's not only the sign and seal that we're dead to sin and we have God's forgiveness, but it's also a sign and seal that God has given us the life of His Son. If you have been so identified with Him in His death, you have also been identified when He rose up from the dead in newness of life. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 says, and Paul is in the middle of this section about asking, how should we live? What should our lives look like because we have trusted in Christ? We know that our sins have been forgiven. But what does that mean for our everyday life? Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin 
and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Paul's point is that if you, if you shared in Christ's death through your union with him, then you also share in his resurrection life. And baptism is the sign and seal of both. Both that you have been cleansed from sin, but also that you have been renewed for a greater purpose. Walking out that new life, that resurrection life, making what God has declared of you righteous, true in your life. And this, of course, makes logical sense. If you're going to turn from something, you have to turn to something else, right? So if you're turning from sin, where are you turning towards? Well, righteousness in Christ. You're turning towards a a new life in Him. So mortification of sin leads to us walking out our faith in the newness of life. And baptism is a sign and a seal that that is true. That is your reality. You have been washed and cleansed from your sin. For what purpose? In order that you may walk in the newness of life. So baptism is a sign and a seal of a new life in Christ. But baptism is also a sign and a seal of our adoption and admission into the church. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. We've been talking a lot about union with Christ. But into Christ, being baptized into somebody, means that you're baptized into the whole Christ. And that means that you are brought into his new reality the church, which is his body, you are united together not as an individual, but as a group of people. And so, you uh, in baptism is also a sign and seal of your admission into the church, into the people of God. You see, our regeneration, re and generation, generation is birth, our rebirth, our, our being born again, means that we are a part of a new family. We have a new father. God is our father, right? You are in the waters of baptism marked with his name, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You have a new family identity. You are brought into this new reality. As as Jesus responds to Nicodemus in John 3, says, Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. 
Jesus is saying that if you want to enter into this new reality, if you want to be a part of this new family, then you have to be born again. You have to be regenerated. You have to be made new. You have to be a new creature that's included in this new body, Jesus Christ. And so baptism is a sign and a seal of our adoption, that we have been marked with the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And remember what signs do. Signs signify visibly an invisible reality. What do seals do? Seals verify that something is authentic. When you put your seal on a letter, it represents you. You're saying these statements are true. This reality is true. When God marks you in the waters of baptism, he says, this one is mine and he has been included in my son, which means he's a part of the body of Christ, which is the church. That one is enrolled there. That's why that sermon in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 were enrolled into the church. They are baptized, they trust in Jesus Christ, and they are brought into fellowship with all of the saints on that very day. See, baptism shows visibly that you have been washed clean from sin, prepared for new life as a member of the new covenant community, the body of Christ. That's so vital for you to get. Baptism shows visibly that you have been washed clean from your sins, prepared for a new life as a member of the new covenant community, the body of Christ. So, baptism is a sign and seal of those things. But the question remains, who is baptism for? Scripture clearly shows that baptism is a sign and a seal of our union with Christ. But who receives that sign and seal? To answer, we need to go back a little bit to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 18, God says this in a kind of offhand comment. He says in Genesis 18, 19, he's speaking about Abraham. He says, For I have chosen him, that is Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then if we fast forward just a a little bit to Malachi chapter 2, the prophet Malachi says this, which opens up to us a little bit of the purposes and plans of God concerning marriage and the family. And he says this, he's condemning Israel because they have not been faithful to their wives, particularly the wives of their youth. And he says, this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altars with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves and your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. See, what's happening is that God had joined these couples together as one for the purpose of producing godly offspring. 
This is why, as a pastor, I will not marry somebody who refuses to have children. Now, God may not bless you with children, and that's in God's providence. But in the refusal to have children, we're saying that we do not agree with the purposes for which God has instituted marriage. And that is to raise up godly offspring, to give us children. And so he told Abraham, he said, I have chosen Abraham because I know, I know that he will command his family after him. He will teach them the faith. He will raise the children to be faithful in the covenant. You see, why do we baptize infants? We baptize infants because we are covenantal. We believe that God uses the mechanism family, a faithful husband and a wife, nurturing and instructing their children in the faith. Why were the males circumcised on the eighth day? They had no choice. They don't know what's happening. But in that circumcision, God says, I am making them a part of my covenant people. So, in this very restricted economy of the old covenant where Israel is selected out of all the nations for God to show his electing love just on this one nation. And in that, the children partake in that blessing. Then when we come to the new covenant, which is expansive, now it's not just the nation of Israel, but all the nations of the world who are brought in. And not just the males, but also women are included. They're baptized. But now, all of a sudden, in this grand, expansive nature of the new covenant, our children are restricted from the waters of baptism, from the covenant sign, from the sign and the seal that signifies they are a part of the people of God. Why would God, who was restrictive in the old covenant, be and more expansive in the new covenant, be all of a sudden restrictive to children who were benefits of the promises in the old covenant. See, baptism is a sign of our children's inclusion in the covenant people of God. Paul makes that explicit link in Colossians 2, which we already read. If you've been buried with Christ in baptism, which is the circumcision of Christ, the putting off of your flesh, then you were also raised by the powerful working of God. He identifies those two signs as being similar. The sign, the covenant sign of circumcision is identified in the New Testament as the covenant sign of baptism. And so we believe that God has uh, included our children in the promises. God works covenantally, and families happen to be the smallest covenantal unit in society and the ideal vehicle for inculcating the faith. Who better to train up your children than you to teach them what you believe, to instill in them the things that you hold dearly? We have um, also the text that we read from Acts chapter 2. Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. Peter doesn't exclude our children in the new covenant promises, the benefits of having our sins forgiven and being included in Christ. 
on and on and on, we see that uh, the New Testament scriptures are not restrictive. In our catechism, question 95 says, to whom is baptism to be administered? Baptism is not to be administered to any that are out of the visible church till they profess their faith in Christ and obedience to him. But the infants of such as are members of the visible church are to be baptized. So we certainly believe in a believer's baptism. If I had never known of the faith and I hear the gospel and I respond in the same way there and I believe the promises of God and I repent and I come to the elders and I say, I want to be baptized. We would baptize them. We would baptize them because they want to be a part of the visible church. They want to identify with Jesus Christ. But we would also baptize their children because we recognize that the promises are not just for them, but they are also for their children. The main thing I want you to get out of this, and we've talked at length about this when we talked about the sacraments. The sacraments are not something you do. They're something God does to you or for you. Baptism is not something you do to yourself. I don't just go down to the Lackawanna and say, I really, I've really not led a great life this past couple months, and I really feel like I need to repent. And so I feel like I need to be baptized again. I'm going to go down, and I'm going to baptize myself. No, you don't do that. And the reason being is because the whole church is not there gathered. When you're being baptized, you're being brought into this covenant community. Josiah Minchi our newest covenant member is going to be baptized, and that signifies that he is a part of us. He is joined to us. He has been admitted into the church, just like his mother and father and sister have. You don't do baptism. God does it to you. Even if you are an adult and you come to baptism, God is still the one saying, you are mine. I am washing you with water. I am cleansing you from the guilt of sin. I am renewing you for faithfulness and a life, a resurrection life. I am including you in my people, in the covenant people of God. God washed you. He united you to his son. He forgave your sins. He cleansed you from sin. He restored you to new life. He adopted you into his family. He made you part of the visible body of Christ, the church. He did all those things to you. You didn't do it. You were passive, a receiver. You rested in the grace and the mercy that was given to you in Christ. So what what does baptism do? Does baptism save you? Peter seems to suggest so in 1 Peter 3 18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which correspond to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's Peter doing there? He's identifying the sign of 
God saving Noah in the flood. How did God save Noah? Noah had to be in the ark. He had to be in the ark to be saved from the waters of the flood. Because he was in that, he was saved. In the same way, Peter says, baptism corresponds to that. But he doesn't say that baptism saves you. He says that baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not just as a, it's not just the removal of dirt that saves you, right? And that's what we've been trying to highlight. All of the deeper realities that the sacrament points to are things that you can't do and water doesn't affect. Water does not cleanse you from sin, but it does point to the reality that Jesus Christ died and when he died, you died. Just as there's a nece- it's necessary to receive the grace of the Lord's Supper, so also in baptism are all the benefits of Christ given to us only by faith. It's not tied to the moment. When Josiah is baptized, that doesn't mean automatically that he will respond in faith. That is a gift of God. And it may be that he does, as his little sister already has. Professed faith in Christ and her love for God, even at a very early age. And why? Because the Menchies are nurturing her in the faith. They are training her. They are teaching her to love the things that they love. They're modeling that in their life and they're pointing her to the scriptures. That's how God works. He doesn't work merely in the washing of water. He works by working faith in the hearts of his people. But it's also not a pointless symbolic exercise. The confession is helpful here. It says... The the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time where it is administered. Yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promise is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. And that means that if you have been baptized, you can remember your baptism and you can remember the way that you responded to the grace that was really offered. It was really displayed there in the sacrament. It was really conferred to you. That grace is a real grace. But it has to be received by faith. Remember the admonition that Paul gave to Israel. They were all baptized. They were all baptized into Moses, into the cloud, and in the sea. They all drank from the spiritual rock, which was Christ. But yet, they didn't believe. It wasn't joined with faith. They didn't trust God and his promises. And maybe some of you who are sitting here today who have been baptized, you're, you're nodding your head and you're thinking, yeah, that's, that's true, I've been baptized. I want to ask you, do you have the same faith that Abraham had when he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, when he believed God and the sign of that was circumcision? He trusted that God's promises were true. Is that true of you? Do you believe that you were united to Christ 
And that it, the, your baptism is a sign that your sins have been forgiven. And have you been walking in that new life that your baptism pointed to? Have you joined yourself to the visible church seeking the blessing of the people, the communion of the saints? See, the author of Hebrews has a great judgment on those who who don't join their baptism with faith. He says in chapter 6, verse 4, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receive the blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. If you have been baptized and you have not joined that baptism with faith, you really did participate in some benefits that will accrue judgment to you in the end because you will be judged against having greater light, having all of the benefits and all the promises of coming to Christ and then turning away from them and refusing them, refusing to respond in faith, refusing the cleansing, forgiveness, and the new life offered to you in Jesus Christ. And that gift, when refused, comes with judgment. If it's not joined with faith, then your baptism will turn and judge you in the end. Covenant community, uh, we will witness in a few moments a baptism. We will see visibly the sign and seal applied to little Josiah Minchie. And this morning, as the Minchie families and the elders come forward, We have the privilege of baptizing Josiah. And as we do, along with that comes certain responsibilities, not least of which for the Menchie family, as they nurture and raise their son Josiah in the faith, they have a responsibility to lead him, to love him, to provide that example. But also, so do all of you. See, it really does take a village to raise and nurture a covenant Child, It does take the entire body of Christ coming together to nurture that faith. So there will be some responses for you as well as we uh, read these vows together uh, and the covenant promises for Josiah. So could you come forward and um, Bill, could you come also?